Welcome to Fuller Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm working from home uh, broadcasting this interview. David Jackson is in the office uh, at Night Swift. He's the CEO of Night Swift, and he is in Phoenix, Arizona today. David, welcome to uh, Fuller Speed Ahead and Freightways TV. Thanks, Craig. Great to be with you. Uh, likewise. Uh, interesting time, not only in freight transportation, but in so certainly an unprecedented events with, with COVID-19 and what's happening, uh, not only in our economy, but more importantly with, with human health and, and lifestyle. I'm wondering, how is Night Swift adjusting to quarantines and, and just the folks in the office? How are you guys making, uh, making the way? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of moving parts, obviously, to, to the situation. <clears throat> We're fortunate that this is an industry that hasn't uh, seen the kind of uh, effects, negative effects that other businesses have already had. So uh, so that's been nice from a business continuity. So it's enabled us to focus on just uh, employee safety and, and trying to stay one or two steps ahead. Uh, you know, what we've ended up doing was transitioning the vast majority of our non-drivers to remote working and working from home. Um, I go back and forth. I've spent most of my time this week uh, in uh, working from home. The kids are all out of school, so it's a little tricky. You gotta kind of barricade yourself in. And so all of our employees are figuring out kind of how to do that. Our managers are learning how to use some of these tools, uh, Zoom and Teams and Skype to, to still get face-to-face -face meetings and a little bit of FaceTime with our people. and. And, uh, you know, it says a lot about the group that they've been able to adjust and our business has been able to run. So um, so we've we've made that adjustment. We have physical terminals across, across the country, over 70 here in North America. And so we have uh, the minimal president presence there from from the office staff just to make sure that our drivers are supported fully. Uh, our drivers have stepped up like we could never have expected. And they've continued to do the work. Uh, our recruiting classes are still are, are still decent, and uh, we're recruiting drivers and putting drivers in trucks this week. We have drivers lined up for next week, and so that's very encouraging. Uh, maybe it's a sign that uh, there are so many that are don't have those kind of opportunities, and there's gainful employment right away. Uh, clearly, there's a need. Feels like there's even a greater good served right now by trucking companies who, be, as long as we can keep communities with products. It keeps the panic down. It helps those that are most in need. And so uh, I, I haven't seen a period in my 20-year career in this space where I've seen so much collaboration back and forth with customers uh, and, uh, and w working with you know, people like us that are just trying to help support them. So uh, I do need to put a shout out to our, our maintenance crew, the folks that maintain our equipment. In our 56 shops throughout the country, they're showing up every day. They're doing a great job. We have new precautions, of course, that we're taking. And so so the business continues to work, and we're adjusting to this new way of uh, talking to people uh, via our computers and, uh, and, uh, and working with our drivers still one-on-one, -on -one, so via the phone. So uh, we're, we're adapting okay, it feels like. Now, did you guys have continuity planning before? Was there a plan that you had to enact, or was this a sort of a war room scenario where you bring everybody together and say, "This is the"? Uh, how, how long have you guys been making these plans for having to work remote? Well, as, as you know, we merged with Swift about two and a half years ago, and so Knight had kind of made a transition to be a little more versatile 
with uh, a lot of laptops uh, to enable more uh, work from home, really to deal with more local disasters like a hurricane that would come through and shut you down and allow us to continue to keep moving. SWIFT, we don't have quite as many uh, on the laptop side, uh, but individuals have other devices and devices at home and enough laptops to make that work. So uh, we were, you know, we were, we've been able to kind of make the, the switch over. We, uh, uh, we, we did some things to increase the bandwidth to make sure we would be good there. But we, so, but we largely had uh, plans in place uh, not for a, an entire everybody go to work remotely, uh, but we've been preparing for a terminal that needs to work remote because we run the business decentralized. So, uh, so you have each one of these terminals would support the drivers based out of those terminals, and so uh, different events can take a terminal offline. And so, uh, you know, what we've learned is you can take multiple terminals offline. Uh, if they still have internet connectivity at home, which isn't the case in the event of a hurricane, uh, and and it and it we can adapt pretty well. So a lot of the corporate back office functions, it was newer for us, uh, but truthfully, those have been even easier transitions uh, because there's so little that's that's facing a customer or facing a driver. Is Knight, I mean, Knight and Swift have historically ran different models. Uh, Knight had a more localized dispatch than Swift being broader over the road uh, with, with less uh, local dispatch. But did, had you already transitioned Swift to uh, a more Knight model uh, of being locally dispatched and operated? Or had Swift operated uh, separate before before this? Yeah, I, I would say they're, they're more like than you might think. Both businesses were more alike. I think they were the two most decentralized models, at least of size and scale, in the whole country. And so, you know, at Swift, there's a larger concentration of dedicated, and so sometimes the dedicated might not all be quite the same as local. But if you look at the irregular route piece, uh, the concept was very similar. Swift would have driver leaders for every 30-plus drivers. Knight would have a driver manager for every 30 plus drivers. So sometimes called slightly different things. In essence, uh, the concept was you have trucks, which are the, the main accounting uh, unit that's tracked in a P&L for a business. And so that enables you to have a P&L at the terminal level. Uh, Knight has, has really built the business around that concept. Uh, Swift arguably had it historically, had somewhat gotten away with it or from it. And we, we've brought that back. And so what we've learned is, although there are uh, different cultures, uh, we both rally and care about a lot of the same things, which are to be as safe as humanly possible when we're over the road, uh, to be productive, to create a great job for the driver, a good return for the truck, and to have financial accountability for performance. And so we've just helped to institute those principles uh, in a way that wasn't forcing, but sharing, and uh, it's been uh, it's been widely adopted, well accepted. I would say that the corporate group, if you will, supporting Swift, is a lot thinner today than what it historically had been. You'd find that the business is largely uh, run and 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 uh, and the group most empowered is that local operations group, and so you know we've done that, and there was. Just some alignment changes that uh, that took place uh, that we felt like were just appropriate given the success we've seen in other businesses. 
or in other truckload models, but those are somewhat subtle. So from a purchasing perspective, we represent all 19,000 trucks when we go to, to, to purchase goods. Uh, and, uh, but we've, so we've tried to maximize the economies of scale in terms of purchasing, in terms of technology investment, uh, in terms of trying to share best practices and best ideas, uh, but while at the same time preserving this local autonomy. To us, that's huge in this business. And so decisions have to be able to be made at that local level. Otherwise, you have unintended consequences with how that impacts drivers. You have unintended consequences with how it how it affects people that are that are executing the transactions. This is a transactional business, and so the real risk of economies of scale come when we start to meddle in those areas where size is a is a diseconomy, and that comes into that day to day execution. So, um, so <clears throat> it's been a it's been a fun experience for the last two and a half years plus, and. Uh, and I think we've we've all learned from one another, and we've we've been able to make a lot of progress. Progress in the areas that we think matter most, which are safety and and uh, driver uh, the driver turnover and success in recruiting drivers, and then and then the financial returns. So uh, it's been remarkable from the outside, both reporting on it as well as just being you know a trucking advocate. Uh, a, a fan of, of what you guys have done. It's been remarkable to look at. There was a lot of cynics uh, on whether this would, you know, Knight and Swift merging two massive companies, one larger than the other, and whether that would actually uh, work. You guys have done a remarkable job. I, I think any any company would be fortunate to to for that to 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 have taken place. So congratulations. Trucking M and A is 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 always a high risk proposition, but you guys seem to have a model that works and I, I commend you. Do you think being local in Phoenix has something to do with it? Or do you think it was a broader sort of execution that, that you guys uh, uh, that you played in in that? Well, uh, there's no doubt that we had some wind in our back given that we were only about twenty five or so miles apart. And so we've been able to share people back and forth. Uh, there's been a significant number of individuals from the night side that have moved from night over over there. Did that two and a half years ago. Um, the one of the one of the wonderful uh, discoveries we expected this, and it and and uh, sure enough, it lived up to it. Was just great people, just great people at Swift, and so they they've not only. Uh, been great to work with and been instrumental in the progress that's been made, but they've also helped to influence uh, people at night. And so uh, that w- it wouldn't have been able to happen that quickly, maybe, and that uh, to the degree that it has, uh, without being able to share and collaborate as widely as we have. That being said, uh, I don't think that uh, we're restricted to only be able to do this in Phoenix, Arizona, that only uh, trucking companies in Phoenix are on the on the list um, there's two companies that are wonderful companies that still have retained their autonomy we have Barnon uh, based out of Granger Iowa running 500 trucks very successful operation uh, you won't find a night logo that one came before the merger with Swift you won't find a night logo in the place um, and uh, and we, we 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 exchange ideas. They they do things sometimes a little bit different, but in the end, get the financial return 
that uh, that's the target for all of our businesses. We also acquired a company about two years ago called Abilene Motor Express out of Richmond, Virginia. Likewise, uh, that's a business that enjoys their autonomy. They they spec trucks a little different than with the way we do anywhere else, and and it works. It works in that model. It works in that market. And so, uh, so we we feel like we can support. Uh, the local the local leaders, we think that there are massive risks with trying to veto a driver's decision, and the driver has chosen to drive for whichever logo that is, and for us to come in and say, no, 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 we got a better idea. This is who you really wanted to work for. We're going to change the truck and the logo and the, and the trailers. Uh, we think there's huge risk to doing that, and, and history has shown that there's huge risk. One plus one can equal 1.2 as a result of that, and so um, we we love we love that local operations piece. The the areas that we can come and bring a disproportionate uh, positive uh, influence can often come invisible to the driver and invisible to the frontline operations. And so we feel like we understand rates and the pricing market very very well. We feel like we understand purchasing. We understand the market market conditions. Uh, we, we, we think we're, you know, we think we anticipate and see the market changing well in advance. And there, there are different things you can do at certain parts in the cycle. And of course, this is a cyclical business. And so, um, being able to share and do those things across multiple brands has proven to be pretty, pretty helpful for everybody. So, so David, this is a, I mean, COVID-19, the coronavirus, uh, has had a tremendous impact on, and you know, societies we talked about, but drivers are are the unsung heroes. And maybe, maybe as you pointed out, they are people are recognizing the role they have. I'm seeing a lot of traffic on social media, mentions of how important drivers are. Even broader media, uh, national media outlets, which typically uh, have a tendency to report the negative news on trucking, and and now have sort of switched and, and have talked about how important the driver population is. What are you hearing from your drivers in terms of, of how they're feeling? What's their sentiment right now? And what precautions or information do, message do you have for them out there to, to stay safe? Yeah, appreciate that. Well, our drivers are unbelievable. They're, they're our heroes. And, uh, you know, we put out a note a week ago, put out a little video clip where I let them know that they, they would probably not fully be recognized or get credit for the, for the real valor uh, that they're – that they're bringing and how important they are. And however, I have never seen the kind of respect for drivers, well-deserved credit that there are many, that many of them are receiving. I'm sure still it's not enough and it's not to every driver, but I read a Facebook post for one of our drivers that was in line to buy some groceries and the people in front of him recognized based on his shirt that it matched the truck outside and they asked if he was a trucker and he said, yes. And then without telling him, they paid the cashier for all of his stuff. And so as he was typing the post, he said he had tears. And I'm so glad, so happy to hear that. Um, we have customers who are preparing meals for drivers when they come through. We have another customer who's slicing up uh, deli meats and sending them off with uh, extra packages for future meals. We have a, one company who's opened up their cafeteria to our drivers when they come to deliver. And so... Uh, this is just wonderful. Sometimes we struggled before to to have appropriate restrooms for our our, our driving associates, and so that's been wonderful. Um, in an effort to support them and keep them on the road, 
Uh, we started earlier this week, we announced it last week, a financial incentive for our drivers. So they have the opportunity to earn, you know, up to around $1,000 a month, depending on how productive they are. Uh, and uh, it's really, it's uh, based on very, atta very attainable mileage marks, you can make up to $200 extra a week. And so just trying to continue to support them for the complexities that they that they might be facing out on the road. Uh, we've also sourced about a million dollars worth of provisions. Uh, we have those in 17 of our terminals for drivers to be able to come. These are, you know, peanut butter, granola bars, uh, bottled water. We have some customers have donated products uh, in addition to that. But, but in all, we've secured about 80 full truckloads of provisions just just to try and help support our drivers as as many of the restaurants are limited to drive-throughs or takeout and it's not always very accommodating to a truck and a trailer so uh, so we're we're grateful for the cooperation collaboration we've seen from our customers and the respect that everybody seems to be giving our drivers yeah, it's a it's an interesting time, and I think it's an important. They are the unsung heroes, you know. And, and you can see that when you go into a grocery store, you know, in the evening, and they're completely sold out of a product. Maybe it's meat or toilet paper, or whatever. The next morning, you go in, everything's restocked. That's not magic. That's the you know that's the work of the drivers in the logistics industry that's doing that. Um, a lot of stuff happening. What what are the things that drivers should be doing in terms of? Uh, what are you guys telling your drivers in terms of, of safety and precautions that they should be taking right now? Yeah, well, we're encouraging the social distancing for sure. Uh, lots of hand washing, lots of sanitizer uh, to be careful. Uh, we're uh, we're trying to uh, recommend that our drivers still use our many facilities for restrooms and showers, but not, not necessarily congregate if they don't have to. Uh, we've lightened the load a little bit uh, with our... Uh, our maintenance shops and uh, have eased some of the mileage parameters in which we do certain uh, uh, proactive, not the main oil change, but other proactive type of uh, uh, inspections and to just leave our shop mechanics more available to deal with individual drivers who are displaced temporarily because their truck has something that needs to be fixed or worked on. And so we're trying to minimize those so that uh, so that the only drivers that we would have that wouldn't have a, a safe place in their truck to be and, and maybe need to sit in one of our lounges, they, that would be for the, the minimal amount of time possible. Our shops have adopted policies a couple of weeks ago where, uh, where we not only do we use a, a machine called an ozone to eliminate odors and uh, part of the disinfectant process, but we wiped out all services or surfaces, uh, place a little tag in there signed by whoever's done it, everything that's been done to clean it uh, for the driver. They're using gloves when they go in, when they go out of trucks. Uh, and so we've tried to take every precaution to protect the shop mechanics and to make sure that our drivers have clean trucks that they get into. So if they were to move from one truck to the next, there's uh, an extensive sanitation process that, uh, that happens. And that same thing goes for all the drivers will be seated into trucks this week and into next week and in the future uh, through recruiting. So those are those are some of what we're trying to do. The data we're tracking is talking, I mean, we're seeing massive surges of volume across the entire market. Um, it, it is interesting just how, uh, how, how this has been so significant. What are you guys seeing uh, on your side? Are you also seeing lots of volume across your customers? 
you know, you, you, you're in the areas you would expect, anything tied to consumer staple, anything tied to grocery stores, definitely, uh, you know, there's been a big pickup in demand for perspective in the Swift business, about 65% of what we haul as a percentage of revenue uh, fits into that consumer goods, consumer staple type uh, type of an area. At night, it's a little closer to 55% of what we do. Uh, overall, we do about 18% of our goods are refrigerated. Now, the, the unique thing for us is we're predominantly irregular route. So we have large dedicated, but but by far our biggest area is the irregular route line haul business. And the nature of that is flexibility. And so you could move from one to the next. And so we've been able to flex and surge in those areas. Now, of course, there's several other areas of the business uh, that we expect will be slowing and have started to slow. Uh, we have we haven't had port imp- or import volumes coming through our ports really uh, from Asia since mid to late February is when we really saw it drop off. And so uh, there are containers coming. Orders have been placed months ago. And I'm sure some of that people are looking for urgently and other things uh, item are maybe of a nature that people aren't as urgent to take them today given how businesses have changed uh, we'll see how the how the labor deals with that kind of backload backlog of uh, containers that are all going to hit. Um, could take three weeks or so to see that kind of start to move itself throughout the country, and so that'll bring kind of a new freight source. Uh, it's a little bit. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, the economy um, is changing dynamically, and there are some areas that have gone very very quiet and will for a period of time, and so. Uh, I wouldn't look at some of the the acute tightness that we're seeing in areas and just assume that that's just going to continue uh, and that trucking will be totally immune to, uh, to to waning demand. We'll just have to kind of see how that goes. Yeah, I think when you see 40% of the freight economy just in a standstill, whether it's manufacturing, industrials, uh, housing, all of that's being impacted. It's It's going to be second quarter is going to be a tough one, uh, but I think everybody gets a pass, if you will. I mean, uh, the stocks, the broadly, the market has, has already priced in some of that. The thing that I'm uh, looking forward to is, you know, once once this health crisis is solved for, and eventually it will be, um, once it is, there's so much money coming into the economy from the government and not only our government, but global globally, we have so much happening. It's, it is interesting because I, I don't think I've seen this concerted effort of um, you know, all parties of government and and really everyone focused on one thing, which is keeping the economy going as well as uh, it, it, it almost feels like we're, we're we're so much more focused on keeping the economy going in government. Uh, and then the states have had to deal with the health issues. Um, but it is interesting because there does seem to be a lot of uh, uh, energy to, to save jobs and, and keep everything going. I think this is uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting year. I'm bullish to the second half after we get through the second quarter, uh, because I, I just, you can't have that much money hit the economy and it not, it not have an impact on trucking. I mean, trucking is a direct correlation to GDP. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think the hope of a V kind of went away. It looks like more of a U and, uh, and I think you're right. I'm, I'm very optimistic, uh, that all of the stimulative monetary actions will will lead to to some pickup and so it seems like the goal now is to protect the infrastructure keep 
keep people intact, keep keep businesses open, even if it's minimal, and, and support individuals to kind of get through the bottom of this U. I think as it relates to our industry, you know, we're very supply-demand sensitive. And, you know, we had arguably, if you, if you called it that the rates hit their peak in August of 2018 and started to kind of recede, if you look at the third-party indices, um, then uh, it would tell you that that uh, it's been a tough road for going on a year and a half already to say nothing for some of the inflationary pressures, insurance probably being the most pronounced to kind of sneak up on people. Uh, You look at the fact that the used equipment market never recovered. This is the first recovery we've had in 40 years that are longer that, uh, that didn't see a massive rebound in the used equipment market because normally conventional thinking is if I, if there's, if there's high rates, then, I'm going to go buy more trucks and I'm going to go buy a $45,000 truck instead of 145,000. This is going back 10 years ago uh, because I get paid the same amount of money, regardless of which truck I buy. And this go around, we saw a different, a different approach. We saw bonus bonus depreciation get offered and we saw a lot of speculation in the dealer network and that people would, would take advantage of that. And it became the ultimate recruiting tool. And what was the most difficult driver environment we had seen yet in since 1980 deregulation, um, the way to find a new driver was put them into a brand spanking new truck where they take the plastic off the seats. And so it was effective when a lot of trucks got added, a lot of drivers got added, a lot of small guys grew. The problem is now they're stuck with these payments that in many cases are about $1,000 more than the big guys like us pay in monthly depreciation, they pay that in a, in a rent or a lease payment or, mm-hmm. or finance payment. And so, so now we find ourselves in a, in a difficult, it's been a difficult environment with challenges, but the collateral base is really small because used equipment is, is usually folks are upside down and the inventories are growing there. So we're in a unique spot. And so, so although we have good demand right now, uh, this week is, as grocery stores continue to not be able to supply enough for to, to, to meet customer demand. Uh, and, and at some point, all these restaurants that have walk-in refrigerators that are totally depleted and empty now, those will all get filled when the, when the, when the consumers have realized they can't fit anything else in the pantry or the fridge or the fridge outside in the garage, then hopefully they'll kick on. But there could be this little period in between where it gets a little bit tricky and uh, and there are some carriers who are probably not as well positioned to be able to deal with that and don't have the cash float to get through. So it'll be interesting to see what this looks like. So you, you've really got two things to grab. You got to, you have the demand side to grab, and then you have a a supply side that already came into the came into this market uh, it, with erosion and supply. So so to those that can position themselves, those that are well capitalized, those that can endure the bottom of the U, you know, I think it could be pretty good. Yeah. It seems like uh, companies that have a lot of exposure to retail consumer package, good grocers, and it it seems to favor the larger carriers, which have consistent uh, flow and are able to drop trailers and offer a lot of capacity and surges like night Swift and other enterprise carriers. You guys are much better positioned. We're hearing a lot of uh, brokerages are laying off because they're seeing both the compression and in their margins as well as just the drying up of the spot market. And so that 
that's probably reflective of the type of carriers that are, are going to struggle in this market. You mentioned something about insurance. And if anyone's been paying attention to trucking uh, for the last couple of years, insurance has been a really hot topic. Um, what, what are you hearing in terms of the pressures that uh, are on the insurance companies in terms of what fleets are getting in terms of quotes? Is it is it 20%, 60%? What is the numbers that you're hearing in terms of the pressure that they're under? Yeah, well, uh, if I could just make one comment on the point you made, then talk about insurance, if you don't mind, Craig. Um, just that, that idea of the brokers struggling and the fact that some of the larger enterprise carriers, if you will, seem to haul this this retail, this consumer good uh, type, uh, type of products, I, I would say that those supply chains are usually the most advanced. They're the most sophisticated. They have the most throughput. They're often businesses that have very small margins. Groceries, not a big margin business. They, they, they can't mess around and they have huge, huge throughput volumes. And so we have seen them migrate faster towards the most efficient ways to do that. And that in the end is using trailer pools. And trailer pools are massively more efficient they were before ELDs, even more so post ELDs, because if you, you know, if if they their goal is to not unload and stock a whole trailer, it's to unload and load those pallets, touch them one time and get them loaded and keep them moving more in a transload. And the only way you can do that is you got to have a trailer pool. And so I think that's where you're seeing the big difference. That's where you're seeing the value. I think that's why you've seen contract rates have held in better relative to spot rates. You know, even though we've given up some of that spread, that spread really expanded to a record level we'd never seen before, and and I think it really separates out the difference from that ultra spot live load live unload world that the brokers live in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's the nature of that's the nature of brokers. That's where it began. It's about surge capacities, about produce type capacity, and uh, produce needs that come and go quickly. And so, it can be dangerous to try and maybe outkick your coverage and think that you can serve the whole truckload market that way when the truckload market has a has a, a well-documented history of always gravitating towards what's most efficient. So so I think that's why you're seeing different parts of trucking. Uh, it's a, the, the, the change has affected them differently. As it relates to insurance, uh, you know, we've had some big nuclear verdicts. We really need reform. It's... Uh, it's, it's a little tricky uh, out there. Uh, we're, we would be big fans of hair follicle drug testing for everybody. We think that it's the right thing to do. Uh, it would lead to less accidents, which would which is what the industry, it's what we're after. It's what we want as an industry. It's what we want and demand and expect as a community as well. Um, and I think that would help. And so uh, the there have been some nuclear verdicts that have taken losses uh, to levels that were unseen before. And so for large carriers that want to build a really tall tower of insurance, it you've got to take on more risk because there just aren't people that want to do that. There aren't as many producers. So the supply has shrunk given what the loss experience have been for some of those players. So as it relates to the small guy, it's really tricky. I mean, we've heard of insurance rates, you know, up massively, 50%, some more than that. I think the real challenge is, you know, those are, this for the small players, they used to uh, they used to buy insurance and they were part of this big aggregate pool. And, and the reality is nobody had a whole lot of data to go with it. So there wasn't a, a six-month breadcrumb trail of everywhere you'd been. And so 
Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is uh, customers only require you to have a million dollars worth of insurance, which isn't nearly enough. That level, that minimum level should be significantly higher. Uh, that number came into play in the 1980s. And so, and, it, and it's, it's stale. And so, um, so that being said, you know, we've, we've, we've seen firsthand how we've had to take on more risk in order to, uh, to not have the premiums go, go up too much. We're already used to taking on a lot of risk at Swift. We take on the first $10 million on our own. Uh, at night, historically, we've been between the $1 and $2 million range. And so um, most of our insurance and claims expense is actual losses, not the premiums. Uh, but we haven't been able to build a tower as high as we historically had uh, because of this. So that's, But that's a little bit more of a first-world problem versus the guy mm-hmm. who has to come up with a massive amount of cash just to hit the basic statutory minimum. So, um, yeah, no no big change there. I don't see people running into that market, so the market's high, uh, hardened. There's not enough supply. Yeah, I was uh, pulling up an old newspaper uh, in 1970s, and it was interesting, the interview they did, uh, the tr- it was interviewed a tr- trucking uh, executive, but he said the problem is insurance and fuel prices, and it was, and rates, and it was... Uh, it was interesting. Um, it was, I guess, it was after deregulation, but it was just funny because talk about the same thing that they talked about forty years ago. It's just the the problem is much bigger. You did mention something uh, that I wanted to, to really double down on. Uh, Lane Kidd at the Trucking Alliance, which you guys are a member, has come out and said as many as ten percent of truck drivers would fail, have failed hair follicle testing uh, for opiates. And it seems to me, and this is a, a conversation I don't understand why it's it's so polarizing because. If you implemented hair follicle testing, it would do two things. One, it would keep drivers that are unsafe off the roads because I don't I, I don't want my family or even you know anyone being out there with drivers that are on opioids. So there's a safety element. And then there also seems like the broader industry, both small and big guys, would benefit from eliminating, uh, eliminating a lot of that surge capacity or that available capacity out there. I mean, that seems like it's there's an advantage on both sides of the argument. That's one. I can actually understand both sides of the ELD argument. I, I could see how that's much more polarizing. The hair follicle testing, if you're not using, uh, then it seems like, or have drivers that are using, it seems like that should be something that everyone should support. Yeah, I think, I, I think if we want to save lives, which it's hard to say that there's anything even close to that in terms of priority. But if we want to save lives, we we can't have people that have any kind of substance abuse problem or addiction uh, to an illicit substance. Uh, we, we, we can't have them man, driving down the road with 80,000 pounds potentially in this business. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult decision for a company to make because you never feel like you have enough drivers. And I can tell you this at Swift, you know, we made that decision. Uh, we closed the uh, the deal, emerged in the fall of 2017, and by January 1st of 2018, we instituted hair follicle drug testing. And there are more than 2,500 drivers that met all the other criteria that passed the urine analysis that failed a hair follicle drug test. And, uh, and they were for, it wasn't for marijuana. Marijuana was number three on the list. More than half were tied to, uh, to other drugs, other stimulants and opioids. And so um, 
could we have used 2,500 more drivers that year in 2018, the greatest freight year, greatest freight rate year, best freight environment uh, since 1980 deregulation? Yeah, we could have used more drivers, but we, but but it wasn't worth it to put a driver who tested positive for recently having uh, used cocaine or opioids or methamphetamines or or even marijuana, and so um, that's uh, we've seen the direct results at Swift. We've had significantly fewer accidents, significantly fewer serious accidents as a result, and so. Uh, it was the right move, but it was painful. It was painful to, you know, for recruiting class sizes when we did it. But we would encourage, we would encourage everybody to do that. I think that there's this adverse selection that unfortunately uh, could could prevail for those that are that are slow to do this because what happens is is uh, drivers will understand that you're doing that testing. And at Swift, I can tell you, there were a lot of people who didn't think they really would do it. And so the percentage fail rate was much higher. And then it dropped back down and got to where the night level had been because Knight's done it for five, six years before we had instituted at Swift. And so um, so those levels came back down and they're close to the level that you cited, uh, that you quoted Lane Kidd on. And so um, it's uh, it, it, these are individuals that we want them to go get help. We, we want them to get the help that they need uh, to save their own life, to to protect them and help them get back on the road safely. And in the meanwhile, not put all of our families uh, and all of us at risk. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's it. That just seems like an easy thing to support and rally around. So, I mean, from an economic standpoint, it's, it's a, it's a good outcome for those that are operating fleet responsible. It's a good outcome. And more importantly for safety, it also seems like with nuclear lawsuits getting as big and as egregious as they are, as a fleet owner, I would want to make sure that I didn't have an opportunity to to just add one thing. Because you end up in a court where a driver fails a drug test uh, on the spot in the event of an accident. That's going to you're going to get roasted in front of a jury, and that's something that every fleet owner should be thinking about. I want to I want to move into technology. You guys have made substantial investments at Night Swift uh, around technology. Uh, you've implemented a, a lot of new offerings in the market, and you're making significant investments. But you've also been outspoken against some of the venture innovation that's out there. Uh, public, I'm curious what is what is your view on technology investment, uh, particularly around the new entrants that are there, and how do you think of Night Swift in this environment? Yeah, well, we've got nothing against anybody who wants who's got a good idea and wants to go out there and spend the money to do it. I think sometimes there can be a misnomer that uh, an oversimplification of the business and the market and, uh, and, and thinking that uh, you can come in and not have to make a capital investment and somehow you can consolidate the whole industry and be the one in control and, and deciding who gets what loads and whatnot. And sometimes that seems to be what might get pitched to investors that that maybe the uh, that the overall brokerage market is bigger than fifty five or sixty billion dollars, but that it's all eight hundred billion. I've you know I've read I've read from some who say that basically we all go through a broker to get our loads, and you know nothing could be further from the truth. At least for night the Night Swift organization and, and family of companies, very rarely is that the case uh, for the uh, several thousand loads a day that we would uh, that we would book. So. Um, 
so I don't I don't know that we have any issue with that. We're just probably not going to choose to spend a whole lot of money that way. I think that in the end, everybody's looking for a network effect. And, and you know, where, where you can figure out how to find one side that then attracts the other side, which attracts the other side. Next thing you know, you have this, this fast-growing network effect. And there's been a failure to launch in, in almost every, every technology uh, investment that's happened there. And so uh, when you look at the transactional brokerage business, where it's variable-based pricing, and if you want to come in and try and steal a bunch of the market with low pricing, you are going to have no chance of incre- no better chance of increasing that pricing once you have that market than the next guy would have. And so, the minute you take your pricing up, it vanishes. And so, it's a little bit it's a little bit like the position that the travel agents were in in the '80s and in the '90s. Everybody went through a travel agent to book a flight. And you'd get your ticket, maybe your chocolate to go with it, but you didn't go direct. And so the airlines figured out finally how to do code sharing. Then they figured out how to create the One World Alliance or um, or the Star Alliance. And then they finally, in 2000, started to say, hey, we're not going to pay commissions. Of course, Southwest never did, but Delta says we're not going to pay commissions pretty soon. They all follow and, and at that same time, they all had, this was 2000, they had websites. They made it easier to go direct. They did code sharing so you, you didn't have to guess who flies where. They could kind of, you could, you could find a more cohesive network. And so as a result of that, the travel agents who didn't make any capital investment in the planes or the people uh, had, a, had a slim technology advance, uh, investment and had all the returns, uh, all of a sudden they found themselves in a pool that they thought was really big down to vacation packages and cruises. And that's where they are today. And it, it's good. Yeah. We need that. It's like doing niche, niche yeah. projects. And, and uh, I, I agree. And we all, you know, we all need, we'll need brokers there too for that. But that's, but, but so some people uh, maybe out of a lack of other good in, investments are spending a lot of time there because of the size of the business and this, the lack of a winner take all winner. And I think Wait, they you said something, so, sorry, a little delay, so I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but there, you said something I, I completely agree with. We actually modeled it, and the TAM is not $800 billion, and it's not even $70 billion. It's actually the margins. The $11 billion is actually what everybody's attacking because ultimately the truck has a clearing price. That, that driver, the market has a clearing price for the capacity. It's that $11 billion that everybody's really fighting about. Um, and I, and I, I think we're more aligned on that. Uh, 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 because I, I, I completely agree with you. There's been a lot of uh, naivety at times invested in that. I do think some of the stuff that the digital brokers are doing, they're helping solve some some issues that the broader brokerage market was not willing to tackle. They, you know, they've added, you mentioned trader pools, they've added some of that for some of their offerings. They're starting to solve things like quick pay and eliminate some of the egregious fees and paying for detention. So even if they're not solving technology innovation problems, some of the innovations they're doing will help solve with some of the more egregious acts that some of the less reputable brokers do. So I, I, I applaud them for that. I do think there may be a couple of winners in that, but I agree with you. It's not as it's not as sexy uh, and as big as, as what it's, it's led to believe. But I'd love to hear Knight Swift's story on what you guys are doing around technology, but just for a few minutes. Yeah, well, there's a there's more that we're working on that I'm probably willing to talk about uh, because this is a super competitive place. 
Uh, I would say just for the quick history, kind of where we are, where we look, we think, you know, in the 80s and in most of the 90s, it, it was post-deregulation. It was if you could buy a truck and hire a driver and you could do that over and over again, you were the big winner. And it seemed like there was no end of the runway. So the 80s were just, we exploded. Those that were in business pre-1980 exploded. And then into the 90s, it continued. 94 was an unbelievable year. Most everyone went public. Really, that was the last time any truckload carriers went public uh, for the first time in any way. And uh, <laughs> so, um, it, it, but by the late 90s, all of a sudden, we found that we had added enough trucks uh, but 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 it was un, unprecedented growth because all of a sudden you didn't have to just use an expensive LTL carrier to move your goods regionally. You could you could find affordable full truck load and you could you could you could take your business throughout the whole country. It was unbelievable for this for the overall economy. Uh, trucking doesn't get credit for what it did for commerce, uh, what full truck load did to kind of open up and regionalize supply chains, and so. Um, but then you got to the late 90s, and next thing you know, uh, we're a little oversupplied. We go into a recession in 2000, 2001. Oil, because of oil prices starting to spike because of unrest in the Middle East, we went over a dollar a gallon. Remember those days? We went over a bucket gallon in 2001, and we hit a recession while we're oversupplied, and it was really tough, and some trucking companies didn't make it out of there. And then all of a sudden, as the baton from the previous two decades gets handed to the brokers. Robinson exploded. 03 to 06, they doubled their net income. I mean, they were just off to a tear. They could grow in good markets. They could grow in bad markets. They didn't, they weren't cyclical. And meanwhile, some of the asset-based guys still thought it was a growth industry or still trying to grow, but the game had changed. And so brokerage was now the place to be. And it seemed to have endless runway and provide all this value. And then and then they started to hit the end of the runway. I still remember, like 2011, 2012, it was hard for those guys to grow volume. So next thing you know, they're starting to compete in normal bids. And 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 for a while, I think customers thought that a commitment from a broker was the same thing as a commitment from the asset-based guy. And you only find out in a tough environment like, like fourth quarter of 13 or 2014, or again in 2018, that a commitment from a broker is not a, is not equal to a commitment of an asset-based guy. So, but but the baton got handled, it feels like, from brokerage over uh, sometime in those early 2010s, got handed over to the intermodal guys, you know, and nothing but $147 a barrel oil in August of 2008 will lead you to, uh, to, to expo explore what's the maximum amount of freight you can put on the rail? And that number might be closer to 15 billion. I don't, you know, I don't know the exact number, but if you add it all up, that looks like it's about the inter intermodal size. It, it isn't, it isn't hundreds of billions. And, uh, and so that seems to have been exploited fully and to the max. So now all of a sudden what we, we sit back and look and we see that the brokers act just as cyclical, if not even more cyclical now, just in this last cycle over the last two to three years, than the asset-based guys. So they, they've kind of hit the max. We, we're, we've got 15 pounds in a 10-pound bag of brokers. Everyone's trying to do it. Barriers to entry are very, very low. And then you have now the intermodal side where we're finding that it's hard to grow intermodal volumes in the aggregate, even pre-COVID-19. If you look at the back half of last year, 
uh, precision railroading arguably has even shrunk that a little bit more. And so, so now the runway isn't quite there like it was before. So now you look, sorry for the history lesson, or at least my version. No, I, this is fat. I love the, as a, as a geek of the industry, as a, as a brat of the industry, this is, this is right up my alley. And, and we, Good. these are always very popular. So. So that means that there's two of us that like this. And that's probably it in the country. So <laughs> I apologize to the viewers. But that leads us to 2020. What's going to happen? Where's it going to go? Well, we have, a, we, have a, we have a bet on that. And I think that uh, the traditional style of brokerage just isn't efficient enough. It used to be, but it isn't anymore. And ELDs have changed that. Supply chains have changed that. The fact that the way warehousing gets done is different. And so, you know, there over time, you know, at one point it was if you have more trucks, that's the truck was the most valuable. Then the driver, the driver was the most valuable. Hard to say that for the until the end of time that the driver won't be the most valuable person in the whole equation, uh, given the challenges to hire vocational labor in general. But uh, the trailers have become increasingly valuable. And so we sit here with 58,000 trailers, the majority of those in trailer pools, uh, very efficient. And so uh, we're finding new ways uh, to, uh, to create value for our customers, in some cases create value for third-party carriers and uh, to, to, grow, to grow in the future. And so... Uh, there's a lot of technology that uh, that we're beta testing that will come that will come at a later date uh, to help with that. Uh, we do have our select marketplace. It's a, a part of our logistics site that allows carriers to come in, and it's a very efficient. They come in, pick a load, kind of a buy it now type feature. Uh, but but I think I think there truly is a network effect to be gained in the future, and we'll see that. And I think. The players that are in a position to do that, I think there's just a small handful, uh, probably less than less than uh, one handful of five fingers full of companies that would have the size and the scale, maybe the understanding of the market and the ability to develop or adopt a technology uh, that could take us into what is the next the winner for the next 10 years. Um, I don't happen to think that it's somebody who comes in and puts a thin technology layer with no capital investment and tries to become a, a, the matchmaker. I think, but I think technology is the most uh, technology combined with assets has the potential to truly be uh, to truly be the winner, if you will, of the next of the next decade. So that's that's where we're focused. Our our approach is we like to build things, test it out. After it works, then we like to talk about it. And uh, we, we just soon not do it in the other order. Well, David, uh, I, I agree. I'm bullish. You, you think the asset, the large asset, scale asset folks, the multimodal that have trailer significant uh, infrastructure are the winners in this next generation? I think so. Is that your bold prediction for the, for the next decade? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting all my chips on the table that direction. Yep. <laughs> all right. We'll see if that's true. David, really appreciate it. It's great. Next time we'll have to do it in person. Uh, once, once the quarantine's out, it's been fantastic to visit with you. I wish you guys the best of luck. Certainly wish, uh, and hope that all drivers out in the road are taking precautions, but also realize how much we appreciate them and the job they do. Thanks for, thanks for the time today. 
Yeah, thank you, Craig, and uh, congratulations to you and Frameways for all the, the success. Uh, likewise. Uh, thanks, David.